My name's David. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the song of songs. Thank you for its uh, delight in the beauty of a sexual relationship. Thank you for uh, this part of your word. And we ask this morning as we especially consider the refrain that places restrictions and places appropriateness upon this kind of relationship, teach us to live holy lives that please you and teach us to seek intimacy with our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Sex is everything, at least if you believe the world. If you believe our culture and our times, sexual relationships, sexuality, it really comes down to the very heart, the very core of who you are. Whether you're having sex and who with and how often and all those sorts of things determine who are you. I feel like I don't even need to argue the point. You put on pretty much any movie, and if there's a male and a female character, you know they're going to end up in bed sometime together. And it depends who's making the movie as to how explicit them going to end up in bed together is going to be. Any book, any story, any magazine, any ad, whether it's in a little thing or on a billboard somewhere, is for sex, unmitigated and lots and lots of it. There are any number of statistics uh, that, that will highlight this for you. We, we, have, we have the internet these days. You may have heard of it. Uh, it, is, it is the sum of human knowledge available at our fingertips. Do you know what people use it for? Pictures of cats and porn. One third of all the internet traffic, of all the websites visited and videos and all the rest of it, one third is porn. Our young people, now let's be honest here, they're not doing anything new, they're doing what young people have always wanted to do, just that now they have the freedom to do it. One in four, one in four students in year 10 have had some sort of sexual encounter. By the time you get to year 12, that number is one in two. Half. Out of those students, the half from year 12, one in two, a quarter of them, so one in eight of year 12 students have had three or more sexual partners already. And of course the young people are doing that because that's what the older people are telling them to do. And by older, I just mean older than year 12. Sex is everything. Get on with it. Get into it. In fact, the only concern that people have with those kind of statistics is that it makes it more likely someone's going to catch an STI or an unwanted pregnancy. There's no concern that they're having sex willy-nilly. They go where our culture leads. To not be engaged sexually with somebody is considered almost some sort of deficiency. You're going to be unfulfilled. You're repressed. You're somehow diminished as a person. If you're not in this kind of relationship, sex, our world says, is everything. As often as possible, with as many people as you can get away with, as early in your life as you are able to. That is the world that we live in. And it is in stark contrast to the refrain that we're going to focus on today. You might have noticed it, chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, so you want to be back in the Song of Songs, page 658. That's what we're going to be reading through again. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles, by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. 
That's clearly important. It comes up three times in the book, twice where we read it, once in chapter 8. And our world thinks that we're bananas, that there might be some reason, some cause for restraint. I mean, come on, Christians, don't be unrealistic. What do you expect the young people to be doing if not this year? You're missing out if you're saying you need to be... I mean, abstinence, what an old-fashioned word that is. In fact, you guys are a bunch of bigots for saying that we shouldn't be going at it like rabbits. Plainly, it's just ridiculous, right? Now, we're going to consider that refrain more in depth. We're going to apply that in particular. But I want to achieve three things, hopefully, this morning from this passage. And I think it's our aims for this series, the four weeks that we're spending in the Song of Songs. And the first is to hold up God's standard as good. In fact, more than good, as, as beautiful, as something that is truly precious, a gift from God. It's not about being repressed and old-fashioned. Rather, it's about enjoying what God has made. Secondly, we do want to warn, want to exhort against pursuing sexual intimacy outside of God's good design. And thirdly, we want to point us to Jesus, that in the end we would be seeking loving intimacy with him. Now, it's become very clear to me, uh, preparing this last couple of weeks, that I'm no poet. Uh, maybe you are. I'm I'm much more of the engineering kind of mindset. I like like working out what does this mean and and what's the the details and I really just want to kind of pull the curtain back and work out what all the images mean and what bit does it connect and and, and that's my temptation. And it it makes me worry that I'm really not going to be very good at teaching poetry either. Uh, There are poets and there are people who can deal well with this. So really I don't want to detract from this. I'm going to read through it, I'm going to make a couple of comments, but I'm not going to try and tease out every single little image because I fear that I'm going to do it a disservice. Now, perhaps you are a poet and perhaps this is somewhere where we can learn uh, from you. You can help us appreciate it. But we are going to read through it again. Uh, we'll make a few comments as we go. What I do want you to notice is the power of love in these two lives. The power that love has over them. It directs their paths in their dreams, in their waking, in their moments, in their decisions. They are driven by the desire for each other. So let's read first of all then this first little section from verses 2 to 7. Song of Songs verse 2. And I'm just going to read both parts. Right? Let's, let's just enjoy the imagery that is there. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the maidens. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade. His fruit is sweet to my taste. He has taken me to the banquet hall. His banner over me is love. Strengthen me with raisins. Refresh me with apples for I'm faint with love. His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. He is her refuge. Maybe that's a bit politically incorrect. These days we're all supposed to be equal to each other and yet she finds in him the shade that she craves for. She finds in him the sustenance. In the middle of her love sickness, right in verse 5, I am faint with love. And he is the one who strengthens her with raisins and with apples. There is a close physical intimacy here. 
His left arm is under my head, his right arm. By, by the way, just as a little aside, here's the, here's the biblical picture for which side of the bed you're supposed to lie on, right? Just, <laughs> just saying, right? She's left arm under, right? No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Although now you're all sitting there thinking, hang on, which side do I lie on, right? <laughs> facing up or facing down? I mean, how does it... <coughs> Such close, powerful... Intimacy. And it is in the context of that intimacy that the refrain comes. Do not awaken love until it so desires. Which is strange, right? You would have thought somebody who's in, in the midst of the throes of passion would be saying, you've got to get some of this. Get into it. This is good. And yet she's saying, be careful. Be warned. Now, it's kind of hard to work out where their relationship is up to here. It, the whole book is really a, a challenge in that sense. For some, there's no chronology to it. It's not really in order. It's just a sequence of songs, a sequence of pictures. And that could well be the case. I'm, I'm not averse to that idea. Uh, for others, and this is where uh, Joe took us last week, there's, there's a progression. There seems to be some sort of change in their relationship. And we'll certainly we'll see it next week as we get into the next bit where it really seems to be the wedding. The, the, the next bit in chapter 3 seems to be where they get married, which, which then kind of makes it a bit uncomfortable for this degree of intimacy and physicality that they've got in this chapter. May well be that this is their betrothal. This is the moment where he says to her, marry me. She says, yes. Maybe it's a dream. There are those who argue that this whole sequence is a dream sequence. You know what it's like in a dream, how you kind of go from one picture to the next picture? You, you, you never kind of connect the two. One moment you're here, the next moment you're here, the next moment you're here. And it kind of reads that way as well. Now, I, I think that as much as anything else, it's a poem, and so of course it's going to jump around like that. Uh, is it a dream? I, I don't know. Where are they at? I'm not sure. And yet she is prepared to say, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. See, this is why I think it might be their courtship and their engagement because of what he says next. So verse 8, Listen, my lover, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the ladder. No, not a, it's not a peeping Tom kind of peering. Like, You're going to have a look. It's, it's, the, it's the, the troubadour, the, the serenade, right? There's the balcony and there she is and there's he with the guitar or whatever it is. Come out, my love, come out. You, you can kind of picture the, the, um, the musical, right, where he's leaping and bounding towards her. My lover spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my beautiful one, my darling, come with me. Winter is over. The time of discontent is past. The times of... Cold and loneliness. Now is spring. Now is the flourishing. Now is the time. Come with me. Leave the walls. Leave the windows. Leave behind the safety of your home. Leave behind the drab life that you live and come with me. Back to nature. Back to the relationship. My dove, he says, in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face. 
Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. I mean, you really get the picture of the serenade. I remember we, uh, uh, we used to go on a, on a national camp for university students in January every year. Uh, kind of countrywide across Argentina, and we'd get together. And these these are Latin people, right? These these are uh, the, the the romantics. The romanticism was strong within them, shall we say? And there was uh, there was the, the second last night every year. There was this uh, traditional serenade that would happen. So the the single women's quarters were over one end, and the the single men's quarters were over this end. And of course, because your blokes having a bit of life, you'd have to wait till it was kind of late, which for them means like two or three a.m. I mean, you, you kind of start at about midnight. But anyway, you, you'd wait till it was late, and then you. You'd all come out with your guitars and, and at the front of the women's quarters and sing to them and invite them, come out, show me your face, let me hear your voice. It was quite a romantic thing and it was inevitably followed by the uh, traditional throwings of the bucket of water, right? That was just kind of how the night progressed. Come out, my love. Let me hear your voice, let me see your face. Let me know you, for you are lovely. Now I don't know what to make of verse 15. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. Maybe there's some, some little trouble. Catch for us. It's unusual. It's slightly ambiguous who is saying it. Maybe the lovers are saying to others, catch for us the foxes. Remove the barriers that are before us. I'm not sure. But whatever it is, the beloved can say, my lover is mine and I am his. Such confidence in the commitment of their relationship. I am his and I know that he is mine. Now this is the refrain from last week. Uh, If you missed it, it'll be up on the website soon. It was recorded for us. But it's worth reflecting on again. My lover is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Turn, my lover, be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. She knows what their relationship is and she knows that it is one of mutual partnership. There is commitment. There is depth to this relationship. It is physicality in the context of deep-seated commitment. How different is that to the way our world uses sex? A one-night stand where you just you meet someone at a pub and you go home together and then even even many long-term relationships, to be perfectly honest, where there is no explicit commitment, where both parties have no idea what the other one is thinking, what they are planning, what they have committed to. We heard last week the uh, the analogy to sniffing glue, to using sex for your own pleasure rather than as a bond and the danger and the pain that comes with it. She has complete confidence. My lover is mine and I am his. And then the scene changes. And we come to chapter 3, and this is a very, very strange passage. It happens twice, this kind of sequence of events. In chapter 5 again, uh, you have this kind of going out, searching, looking for him desperately. If, if any of the song is a dream, I'm, I'm prepared to accept this bit as being one. All night long on my bed I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him but did not find him. She, throughout the length of the night she's searching for him. Perhaps in a dream, perhaps not. Perhaps she gets up. I will get up now, says verse 2. I will go about the city through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. I looked for him and did not find him. 
The watchman found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves, she asked. Like they know who he's going to be. Scarcely had I passed them. When I found the one my heart loves, I held him and would not let him go till I brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. And again, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it pleases. Her longing is so evident. This is the power of love in her life. Even at night, she's, where, where is he? Maybe he's just gone to work. Maybe Who knows why he's not there? But in, in this nighttime desire, she needs to go and look. And when she finds him, she brings him home. Really not to where I would, if, if I'll be perfectly honest with you. right? If you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to go find my lover and where I'm going to take them is to mum's bedroom, I reckon. <laughs> Uh, my in-laws aren't here. Good. They were possibly going to visit today. So I'll tell you this story. We, we, we were a couple of weeks out from getting married. I, I think it was two weeks out and we didn't have somewhere to live yet. Hadn't found a place to rent. We were, you know, kind of looking, what are we going to do? Didn't really bother me. I'm, I'm just that kind of person, right? We'll find something, we'll be right. In hindsight, I suspected Dwayne's mum was really quite stressed about this. This young whippersnipper, upstart, right, whatever he is, uh, at 22 and 20 we were, so, you know, her young daughter had never moved out of home yet and, uh, and they've got nowhere to live. So she said to us at one point, very kindly, very generously, our front lounge room, living room in our house, doesn't really get used. You guys are welcome to live there for a little while, uh, until you find a place. I mean, it doesn't matter that it's got a glass door and it doesn't seal at all and there's windows. I mean, yeah, newlyweds, what do you need privacy for? Anyway, well, I mean, it's just... I can tell you that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> Love you to bits, Mum Hodgkinson. But... And yet, this is the place that she brings him to. Her place of safety, her place of confidence, her place... I want you to come home to Mum. That is where their relationship is at. And yet there is the refrain again. Do not awaken or arouse love until it pleases. Now, this refrain comes up a third time in the book as well. And it's interesting that the same two kind of things that happened previously are put together in chapter 8. In chapter 2, it's his left arm, he's under me, his right arm embraces me. In chapter 3, I want to take him home to mum's house. And then when you get to chapter 8, verse 2, I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house. Verse 3, his left arm is under my head, his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love. Again, it's, 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 it's all brought together in this point. Kind of hard to understand what's the point. What does it mean? Poets, this is where we need your help. I take it that it is the context of a physical, intimate relationship that she's presenting this charge. Whether it's they are engaged in a sexual relationship and she's saying from within that relationship, don't do it, as in don't arouse or awaken love until it pleases, or whether they're just completely infatuated with each other, looking forward to their wedding, saying, "Just, uh, I'm not sure which way around. And that's where the timing of the book becomes uh, quite a challenge for us. But what is in this charge, I think, is reasonably clear. So let's have a look. Chapter 2, verse 7. I mean, it's the same refrain each time. She says this, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Again, not sure why she addresses specifically the women, daughters of Jerusalem. 
uh, going to be the maidens of chapter one, the, the eligible, the, the the virgins, the young the young ladies who are who are perhaps going to consider this type of relationship soon. At the very least, if he's saying to the women, don't stir up or awaken love, it must be for the men, don't stir up or awaken them until it is appropriate to do so. I charge you, he says, by the gazelle and by the does of the field. Again, not quite sure what the strength of that is. Why, why the gazelle and the does of the field? Is it just, I charge you by nature, by, by this relationship type that we are engaged with? Is it to do with men and women? The, the, the gazelles seem to be the guys. The does of the field seem to be the women, the way that it's used in this passage. I charge you, in the context of men-women relationships, that could be it, but it is certainly strong. I charge you. I place you under oath. Make sure that you listen and that you obey this. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Now, some people take that to mean that love has to be spontaneous. You know, it's the, it's the Hollywood romance, the eyes across the room, the, the you, you'll know when it's right moment, you'll know the person. And ah, I really don't see that here and I don't see it anywhere else in the Bible. I think clearly what it is is do not arouse or awaken love inappropriately. Do not pursue the physical intimacy, the sexual intimacy, in a time, in a place with a person that it is not appropriate to do so. And quite clearly, the only appropriate context is marriage. Therefore, Genesis 2, a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. See, God's standard is not ambiguous. It's not kind of wishy-washy and we can change it how we want and culture will redefine it as we go along and we know better these days. No, God's standard is very clear. There is marriage within which there is to be sex and lots of it or there is self-control and restraint and abstinence. And it is a very important charge that this person puts forward. Because love is so powerful. You could say that evil, things that are bad in the world, are usually something good that's been twisted in some way. So you think of jealousy for a moment, when, you, when you're jealous of somebody else. It might well start out as admiration for them. Oh, I really like what that person is, what that person can do. And then later on you find yourself thinking, oh, I really wish that I could do what that person does. And then you end up somewhere unhelpful. You start something good and you twist it and you end up with something that is really not good. All right, righteous anger. It ends up being bitterness. And the same is certainly true of the sexual act. It is a great gift from God in its appropriate time and in its appropriate place. And yet it is capable of some of the greatest evil and harm that people can do. Think of shattered marriages, destroyed confidences, young lives that are scarred forever. It has enormous power both for good and for evil. And so the song is insistent, do not arouse it. Don't go near it. It's the sleeping lion. Don't poke it with a stick. Except for the appropriate setting. It is damaging in its effect to be sexually 
engaged with another person that you are not married to. Let me illustrate for you. Last week, Joe used the illustration of the, the, the superglue. You remember the superglue? Right? You stick your hands together with superglue, and well, they're stuck now, and if you're going to pull them apart, you're going to leave skin. Right? It's going to hurt, it's going to damage, it's going to be permanent. Sex is a bond. Sex is supposed to join us, and so when it joins two people and then they pull apart, it hurts, it damages, etc. Let me illustrate it a very different way. Sex is like body... In fact, it is body language. It communicates something. You know what body language is, right? I can communicate things to you without saying any words. Uh, let me let me give you an illustration. If I if you come along and you would ask me uh, how are you, and I go, what, what, how am I? I'm good, right? I'm, I'm I'm all right. Now now what if I do this? Two two thumbs. I have two thumbs. How are you? I have two thumbs. It's not as anyway. Right. What if I do this? You come. How are you? And I go, really bad. That's slightly incongruous, isn't it? Sorry, for the recording, I'm holding two thumbs up. right? And, I, and, and I'm saying, I'm, my body language is communicating one thing, but my words, my decisions, my what I'm communicating to you verbally communicates something completely different. Sex is body language. It communicates something. Now, we'll come back to that. It's also possible to misunderstand body language. Uh, different people mean lots of very different things. Now, I, I, I want to show you a misunderstanding that is very common. Um, it, it's a slightly rude gesture in some cultures. So please, I, I, if this is in York, I'm not insulting you. I just want to show this to you, right? In Australia, what does this mean? Rock and roll, right? Yeah, if you've got a metal concert, you'll see them all. Woo! Or if you're really old, it might mean the telephone, right? Okay, that's... Now, in South America, I don't know what this means in South America. Oh, that's not the devil. That's... Ironically, these, these are like stag horns. And what they mean is, your wife is sleeping around. Okay? Now, how's that for something a bit different? Now, you, I'm taking body language that we misunderstand completely differently. Right, what's all this got to do with sex? Sex is body language. Sex communicates something. And in fact, what sex communicates is, I want to bond with you. I want to join myself to you. I want to be with you and committed to you and joined into one flesh with you. At least that's what it ought to mean. Because for many, they say that with their bodies while with their mouths they say, oh, no, 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 this is just relational, this is just casual. Maybe we'll stick, maybe we won't. And it creates all sorts of confusion. And for others, they mean completely different things by sex, right? It's the body language that is confusing. For one, it means I'm going to commit to you forever. And the other one is saying, hey, what a great time we're having. And it's going to bring pain and it's going to cause damage. I've got a bunch of other hand gestures, but we'll leave it at that. You can come and ask me later. I charge you, daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles, by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it pleases. There is a time and there is a place in God's good design for sex and lots of it. And that is within marriage. A man and a woman who have joined themselves together by covenant, by promises, for the duration of their lives, that is where sexual intimacy is appropriate. Do not pursue it otherwise. Let me apply it. I've got three topics to apply it under. Firstly, let me speak to single people for a moment. 
Now, you might be single because you've never married. You might be single because you did get married and for some reason you are now single again. In fact, even for slightly less than half of married people, we will be single again at some point in our lives. So firstly, I've got two points for the single people. Firstly, save sex for marriage. Save sexuality and sexual intimacy for marriage. And I don't just mean the the act of sexual intercourse, but all of the things that go with it, the physicality that goes with it. Someone once said to me, you don't heat the oven unless you're going to cook. All right? So the Bible puts it this way, flee sexual immorality. Flee anything that is going to lead you down that path. Flee. It's not just, ah, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm up to here and the line's kind of over here somewhere, so I'm not, I'm not across it yet. <laughs> you know, we can hold hands and make out and touch, in, but, you know, I haven't crossed the line yet. No, it's the opposite. Flee. Run away. Don't go anywhere near it. And that's got to include single people. It's got to include porn. If a third of internet traffic is porn, then at least some of us are watching it. Statistics aren't, unfortunately, very kind to churches. Think about what you're doing with porn for a moment. Think about last week, and we're talking about the super glue. What you're doing with porn is watering down the glue. You've got your super glue, and, and he or she has her super glue, and you've got your bit, and you're just constantly pouring water into it, such that when the time comes to bond to another person, it's not really sticky anymore. It kind of doesn't work. Because what you've been training yourself is that sex is about pleasure rather than about commitment. Flee it. Do what you need to do to cut it out of your life. Sex outside of marriage is destructive. The world says it's the best thing you could do. They they call us bigots for this. They call us repressed and, and, I mean, Cannot understand it because remember, sex is everything. Do not believe their lies. Sex outside of marriage is destructive to you and is destructive to others. Secondly, single people, and I think more importantly, to be honest, use the gift of singleness that you have for the sake of Jesus' kingdom. That was why we read 1 Corinthians 7. Turn it over, look up 1 Corinthians 7. Page 1110. If you're single, you have a gift. It may sometimes not feel like it. I know that there will be times of loneliness and heartache and pain. But you do have a gift. This is what Paul said, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians and verse 32. Use it for the sake of the kingdom. I would like you to be free from concern, Paul says. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. A married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. His interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good. Not to restrict you, not to shut you down, not to make you miss out on something, but that you might live in the right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If you are single, you have such great power 
You have time and energy and freedom to devote yourself to the Lord in a way that married people can't. Rightly, they've got to care for their for their wives, they've got to care for their children, uh, rightly so. But you have time and power, the ability to dedicate yourself to the Lord. So do it. Whether you are single and never married, whether you have become single again, use who you are and where you are for the Lord. Now, of course, it's better to marry than to burn, Paul says in verse 8. If you can't be holy, if you can't keep self-control of yourself, then seek to be married by all means. It is better to live a life that is holy than to live a life that is sinful. Although some of you may not have the option. We heard at 8 o'clock today an interview with a young man who through circumstances in life has never married. Uh, He hasn't had the opportunity to do so. And so I want to say to you, don't believe the world's lies. Don't believe that you are somehow a lesser person because you have never married, because you have, God forbid the world says, because you're a virgin. Don't believe that you are somehow diminished because of this. Your identity is not in your sexuality. It is in Jesus. You are a loved child of God. Seek your intimacy with Jesus. It's not going to be sexual intimacy. In fact, sexual intimacy is a shadow of what is to be with Jesus upon his return. Secondly, let me apply for the married people. And I have exactly the same two points. Number one, save sex for marriage. Save sex for your marriage. Flee sexual immorality. The damage that adultery causes, I think, is got to be pretty close to parallel to none. For you have taken the covenant and torn it up. You have taken the promises that you made with your body and your lips and denied them. Flee sexual immorality. And that's got to include porn. We're going to come back to it again. Sorry, because married people, you and I, we are just as susceptible to it as the single people are. I know married people in our churches who deal with porn. What you're doing with porn is you're breaking your promises, quite simply. Because your promise that you made to your spouse is that with my body I will serve you. Whereas porn is all about me serving myself with my body. Not in holy service of each other. And you're watering down the glue that is supposed to bond you together and you are training yourself to say something different with your body language. Flee it. We need honesty we need accountability. We, uh, there's something about sexual sin that we are so, we really don't want to talk about it. I don't know if there's some shame that we still attach to it or there's guilt with it that we think we can't talk about or there's, we just fear the consequences. If people found out what I'm doing, ah, we need honesty and accountability. Find, find a Christian brother, a Christian sister that you can share your problem with who will help keep you accountable. But secondly, marriage, and more importantly, use the gift of marriage for the sake of Jesus' kingdom. You have been given a gift. And so, I mean, 1 Corinthians 7, it's there again, verse 29. Listen to the, 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 the mindset that Paul has. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. 
From now on, those who have wives should live as if they have none. Those who mourn as if they weren't, as if they didn't. Those who are happy as if they weren't. Those who buy something as if it's not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if they're not engrossed in it. For this world in its present form is passing away. Now Paul's not saying go home and split up from your spouse. Okay, he's saying what we have to have is this mindset that focuses and knows the age that we live in. Jesus could come back tomorrow. That changes everything. My marriage has only got one more day to go. My possessions are going to burn, so what's the point of them? All that matters is finding more people, getting them into the kingdom of Christ and making them look more like Jesus. Sophia is, uh, is, is a delightful kid. She's our, she's our four-year-old. And uh, she asks quite often, what day is it tomorrow? This is her little thing, right? What day is it tomorrow? Oh, well, tomorrow's Tuesday. And, uh, and what, what do we do on Tuesdays? I mean, well, same as we did last Tuesday, right? We go to Bible study and creche. And, oh, what day is it tomorrow? Well, tomorrow's Thursday. And what do we do Thursdays? Well, Thursday we go to play group. And, um, and every now and then, she says, what day is it tomorrow? Well, it's Tuesday. Is Tuesday when we go to heaven? Is tomorrow when we go to heaven, she says? Every now and then, maybe once every couple of weeks, that just pops out. She's, she has this immediacy to her, this expectation that Jesus comes back tomorrow, right? I mean, you've taught me that what we're waiting for is to go to heaven. That's where I want to go. So is it, is it tomorrow? We have much to learn from that little girl. Use the gift of singleness to serve Jesus. Use the gift of marriage to serve Jesus. We live in a very strange age. Now, I have one application more for all of us. And that is the relationship between the loved, the lover and the beloved in the Song of Songs. The relationship between a husband and a wife is somehow a shadow, a, a picture, a, a little glimpse into the relationship that Jesus has with his church. The pursuit that this young stag has for his beloved bounding over the mountains to seek her as his own, is the pursuit of Jesus for us. The love that is demonstrated by him towards her is the love that took Jesus to the cross, that we might be his. And so if we have that refrain in mind, do not awaken or arouse love until it pleases, I wonder if it doesn't push us in the direction of being very careful that we don't arouse love for anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in the sense of don't love people, but in the sense of don't love idols. Don't pursue another lover other than the Lord Jesus. And especially younger people, you've got to be careful. I've seen a number of people who, who, who begin when they're young to, to kind of pursue travel perhaps. And they travel a couple of times and then a couple of times more and then all of a sudden they're living somewhere overseas having the time of their lives and Jesus is gone. They've replaced their first love for another. I've seen it with work and careerism. I've seen it with the wealth that comes from your first job. All of a sudden you're too busy spending your money to worry about. I've seen it with any number of things. And actually it's not just young people. I've seen it in slightly older people too. What am I going to do in my retirement? can easily become another love. I've done my time. I've done my dues. I've put the hard work into the relationship with Jesus. Now I can kind of forget that one and move on to the thing that I want. I want, to, I want pleasure rather than commitment. Do not arouse or awaken love 
Know the Lord Jesus. He's the one who pursued you, who loves you, and who wants you to be his. So I want to finish with these words from Ephesians 5. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the song. Thank you for this extraordinary relationship. Thank you for the beauty of the poetry. Thank you for the delight that it fills us with. Thank you for the the way that it fires our imaginations. Thank you for the love that it engenders in us. Father, teach us to live holy, self-controlled lives, that every one of us may flee sexual immorality. For the single people, that they would know that there is goodness in abstinence. For marriage, that we would know that there is goodness in sex within our own marriages. And Father, teach all of us to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would know his love so deep, so profound, that we would know ourselves to be his and he ours. Amen.